Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to uh, Matthew chapter 4. We're making our way through Matthew uh, so far at, at kind of a decent clip, but that's, uh, that's about to change. Um, it's about to, to slow down a little bit, uh, which is a good thing. We'll be uh, in Matthew, I think, for, for a little while. But we've been, you know, the first, you know, three chapters, we've looked at the at the birth of Christ. Uh, we've looked at the baptism of Christ. And today we're going to be looking at the temptation of Christ and the beginning uh, of his ministry. So Matthew, in his first couple of chapters, focuses upon the birth of Christ and then kind of fast forwards uh, in life, right? We kind of leave out maybe some of where, where Luke's gospel maybe will give us a little bit. Uh, Matthew's gospel fast forwards um, you know, through the, the childhood uh, of Jesus. Last week we saw in chapter 3 that, that Jesus was baptized. He was baptized by John the Baptist. And we saw that uh, that the heavens had opened up in, the, in this baptism. The Spirit had descended upon him. And, and God had declared, this is my Son uh, in whom I am well pleased. And then as we get into Matthew chapter 4, it seems like things take kind of a hard left turn in Matthew chapter 4. We're told in verse 1 that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That just seems to me like like there's you know Jesus' birth it's a cool thing, Jesus' baptism is a cool thing, uh, and then all of a sudden it says he was led up by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Kind of this hard thing that, that comes uh, our way, and I find it interesting to the, these kind of two like maybe a juxtaposition for a big word that says that Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. These are a couple of things that we might not often put together in our thinking being led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. In other words, the Spirit had, had led Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. Stew on that this week as you're thinking about this passage, about just the implications of that and, and how, how God works. And then we're told that after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You think? <laughs> Like one of the most profound in all of scripture, like he fasted for 40 and 40 nights and he was hungry. Whoa, imagine that. Um, but Jesus, he was directed by the spirit into the wilderness so that he could be tempted by the devil. And the devil tempts Jesus in three different ways. In uh, verse three, it says that the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, meaning Jesus, answered, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so what we see in these kind of three temptations, just to spoil it a little bit for you, is that, that the devil will tempt Jesus with something, and Jesus will respond with the word of God. right? And, and what he's saying here is that after 40 days, right, he was hungry. We shouldn't be surprised by that. And so the devil, the first temptation that he brings to him uh, is that, that you have the power, Jesus, to turn these stones into bread. So if you're hungry, go ahead and turn these stones into bread. And Jesus' response here, essentially saying, as much as I need bread, as hungry as I might be, there's something that I need even more than I need food. And it's every word that comes from the mouth of God. God has revealed himself to us most fully, in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ, and God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures that he's given us, right? You can go a ways without food, right? I, I've, I've known people in my own life who uh, have a habit of fasting, make a practice of fasting, and, and they'll go sometimes for weeks without food. 
And you can do that. The human body can go quite a long time without food before it begins to, to shut down. Right? You can't go long without water. You can only go a few days without water before you know your body starts to, to shut down. But you can go a, a long time without food. But you can't go forever without food. Right? You're, you're going to just shrivel up and die if you just stop eating and stop drinking altogether. And this is a profound statement by Jesus. Is that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So as much as we need food, as much as we need water to survive, we need even more, in a very real sense, every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's given us what he's given us for our sustenance, right? for our spiritual sustenance, our spiritual well-being, and Jesus knows this. The devil then in verse 5, it says, took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so the devil takes Jesus to this high place in the city, the holy city, so in Jerusalem. And he's on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest place. I don't know if you've been, like we were at the East Coast last year, and everywhere you go, there's these big church steeples that you can see from anywhere in whatever city you're in. Because back in the day, they, they would build these church steeples so that people from all around could see, oh, there's where the church is, right? We've got to go there. So the devil takes Jesus to one of these pinnacles, the pinnacle on the temple, and basically throws scripture at him. He's like, okay, so we're using scripture. So here, here's some scripture. It says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down because... It is written that he, meaning the Father, will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up. In other words, he's, he's testing Jesus. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And God's angels will they'll take care of you before you hit the ground and splatter. Right? This is what he's telling you. And Jesus comes back with more scripture. Again, it is written in verse 7, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And as I think about testing God, right? we're, we're, we're told in one place in scripture that we can test God, right? And it's in our generosity, right? We can't be more generous than God. You can't outgive God. So the saying goes, right? We're given permission to test God in that, but we're not given permission to test God in other things. And the devil is putting this silly test in front of Jesus. All the while questioning again, if you are the son of God, if you're the son of God, right? Trying to create doubt to the Son of God. And when you think about this, this is a ridiculous ploy of the devil, right? He, he knows who Jesus is. Jesus knows who the devil is, right? The devil is engaging in a losing battle here. Everybody has to know that, yet he still engages in that battle. And Jesus comes back and says that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. How often do we, do we test God? God, if you do this, I'll do that. God, if you could only do this thing for me, or if you could only arrange my circumstances in such a way, then, then, then I'll believe. Right? If I could see this miracle happen, then I'll, I'll do this thing. Right? What's, what's the saying? There, there are no atheists in the foxhole. Right? God, if you'll deliver me from this, then, then I'll serve you with my life. Right? That's kind of the idea. And Jesus is saying, like, don't do that. Don't, don't put God to the test. God is someone that we come to not primarily with our logic. I'm not saying that we have to check our logic at the door. God has given us the ability to reason, right, for a purpose. 
but, but we don't understand who God is and what he's done primarily through our logic. We understand who God is and what he's done primarily through faith. And not an empty faith, right? Our faith is not uh, without base, right? Sometimes we, we can have a hope that a certain thing will turn out a certain way, and at the end of the day, it's often not more than just wishful thinking, right? We, we have a God who has revealed himself to us in such a way that we can have a faith, that we can have a belief in him that, that is not without base, that, that is not wishful thinking, and, and we're told, like, don't test that. Don't, don't test it in a silly way where you're bargaining with God, right? In verse 8, it says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So, so first he was at the pinnacle of, of Jerusalem, right? Look, look around you and see all this. And then we're told that the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Like, look around. Have you ever, you ever been up here to Palina Peak? I've lived in Central Oregon, you know, pretty much my whole life, and in, until the last, you know, maybe five years ago was the first time I'd ever been to the top of Palina Peak. And you can go up to just, just shy of 8,000 feet. It's like 795 or something like that, just shy of 8,000 feet. And you have a 360-degree view from the top of Palina Peak, and on a clear day, you can see five states. You can see, all, like, this, this is, the devil took Jesus to a place like this. Look at all the kingdoms of the world and our glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. <laughs> this has got to be the most audacious statement in the history of audacious statements. The devil himself saying that, that he will give anything to Jesus as if he's the owner of all of the kingdoms of the world, right? He's not. All of these I will give you, and if that's not audacious enough, he says, if you will fall down and worship me. He's, he's saying to God in the flesh, right? God dwelling among us, as we've seen in the last couple of chapters. Emmanuel, God with us, who, who we're told in Colossians is the exact imprint of God who were told in Philippians that, that he's, he's the king. Like there's going to come a day where every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the devil is saying to that Jesus, I'll give you what I don't own if you'll worship me. <laughs> right? What a ridiculous statement that is. And then Jesus in verse 10 simply says, be gone, Satan. Get out of here. We're done. And he throws more scripture at him. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus is giving, giving the devil a lesson in the holy scriptures here. And so this brings to mind some questions as we read through this narrative. And I had a friend who uh, emailed me over the weekend who knew that I was preaching on this passage. He said, here, here's some questions that come to my mind. And uh, they were really helpful questions. And so uh, thanks, Dave, uh, for this email. But one of the questions that Dave had that I also happen to be stewing on myself was why would God allow Satan to put him through these trials? Why would God allow this? Right? Jesus, Jesus is God in the flesh, right? God stepped into human flesh in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Why would it be allowed by the Father that Jesus would even have to put up with this nonsense? What outcome is another question from these tests do we think that God might have been looking for? 
do you think that God might have, God the Father might have been sitting on the edge of his seat, like, you know, come on, son, come on, you can do it? No, he wasn't. Father was not sitting on the edge of his seat in anxiousness, hoping that his son would pass the test, right? God knows. So what was the point then for a third question that God wanted to make in these occurrences? And I think I have an answer for these questions. Why would God allow this or what was the point uh, that he would want to make through Jesus being tempted? Hebrews chapter 2 might shed a little bit of light on this. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 says that because he, meaning Jesus himself, has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. We, we have a high priest, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us in verse 15, who is not unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he's without sin. And so maybe an answer to this question is what was the point that God wanted to make these occurrences is, is to show us that, that we have a high priest in Jesus, we have a savior in Jesus Christ who, who knows what it's like to suffer, right? He fasted for 40 days and he was hungry, right? I fast for four hours and I feel like I'm suffering, right? <laughs> he went 40 days and he was hungry, right? He knows suffering, Jesus, we're told, lived, lived a life like he didn't even have a place to lay his head. He didn't have a home to call his own in his adult life. Jesus ultimately suffered at the hands of those whom he came to save as he was being nailed to the cross. Like He knows suffering far more than probably you and I will ever know suffering. Right? Jesus, he was beaten. He, he was condemned as a criminal, when in all reality he was innocent. He, he suffered the worst kind of injustice, and it was all for a plan and a purpose. But he suffered an injustice that, that I'm probably never going to suffer, that you're probably never going to suffer. He was tortured in ways that you and I are not likely to ever be tortured. And because those things happened in his life, the writer of Hebrews tells us like he can sympathize with whatever you're going through. <laughs> Because he's been there. Jesus has been alienated by people. He knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to have relationships that don't work out. He knows. And he's able to help those who are being tempted. You, you and I are not able to face temptation without sin. Right? There might be times in our lives where a temptation comes our way and maybe we're able to you know, have some victory in whatever our battle is. But, but at the end of the day, like we, we run to our sin over and over again, right? We're, we're not perfect. And if we're keeping score, in which I don't know if any of you are keeping your own score, but if you're keeping a score, you, you probably fail in temptation more than you succeed in temptation. It's probably just a general truth for most of us. Jesus succeeds where we're not able to succeed. He's able to suffer and he's able to be tempted. And these two things in, in his life coincided. The suffering and the temptation came at the same time. Right? It's bad enough when we're tempted, when, when we're absent of suffering. But, but when you're really going through a hard time and the temptation comes, that's, just, that's a double whammy, isn't it? Jesus was suffered and tempted and he succeeded where you and I uh, often are not able to succeed. And so maybe the point of God 
allowing these occurrences to happen is so that, that we can have a high priest, that we can have a savior who is relatable to us, right? We, we can look to our savior. When, when, when we pray and we can say, I need help in this temptation, I need help in this suffering, we know that the person that we're asking for help from has been there and done that. How many times in your life have you gone through something, maybe a difficulty, and, and you try to seek out somebody who has gone through the thing that you're going through because they can sympathize with you in a way and understand what you're going through in a way that maybe somebody who's not going through that thing can't understand and sympathize. Right? We, we can go to Jesus with anything that we're going through because he's been through it. And he's succeeded in his suffering and he's succeeded in his temptation. He's resisted the devil. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this. It says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man or mankind. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so we, we learn a few things from this. That whatever thing that tempts you, it, it's not unique to you. It may feel like it sometimes, like am I the only one that struggles with whatever this thing is? But there's no temptation that, that has overtaken any of you that, that's not common to somebody else. So that's the first thing. The second thing that we learn is that, that God is faithful. He won't allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. So in other words, God doesn't allow us to be tempted in such a way that we can't say no. So we can't ever say with respect to our sin that God made me do it. We can't say that. We can't even say with respect to our sin that the devil made me do it because the third thing that we learn in this passage in 1 Corinthians is that with the temptation that God will also provide a way of escape so that we'll be able to endure it. And so at the end of the day, we have to look at our temptation and, and, and realize that, that when we give in to our temptation, it's because of our sinful desires. Right? It's because of our rebellious nature. Not because God made me do it. Not because the devil made me do it. Not because this thing was so strong that I didn't, I couldn't say no to it. Right? So we have to own our own sin. Jesus, unlike us, was tempted in every way. And he was able to endure it in ways that you and I are not able to endure it. That, that's the Savior, that we, that's the sympathetic high priest that we have that, that knows what it's like to suffer, that knows what it's like to be tempted, but also knows what it's like to be able to endure that temptation. So when we're really struggling in our own temptation... We can go to our high priest. We can go to our savior and say, help. And he knows the kind of help that we need because he's been there. And then in verse 11, Jesus had his fill and he's told the devil to be gone. And verse 11 says the devil left, right? Jesus said, be gone, get out of here, done, no more. And we're not told that the devil argued, hey, we're not done here yet. No, we're just said, Jesus said, leave. And what happened? The devil left. Right? The, the guy that's saying, I'll give you everything if you worship me, Jesus just says, go away. And that guy went away. Right? He, he obeyed the command of Jesus. And it makes me think of James chapter 4 where it tells us that we should submit ourselves, therefore, to God. And you know what happens when we do that? It says, resist the devil and he'll flee. Resist the devil and he will flee. But then it doesn't stop there. It says also that we need to draw near to God and he will draw near to us. Resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's kind of two sides of a coin. It's not enough to just resist the devil. It's hard to resist the devil. 
right? Temptations are temptations because we, we want to give in to those temptations, right? If I'm hungry and you put a bunch of food in front of me, it's going to be hard for me to say no, right? That's true for all of us. So it's not enough just to resist the devil. It's not enough to grit your teeth and clench your fists and just say, I've got to, like, no, that's not enough. We have to draw near to God. And we're told that when we draw near to God, that he will, in fact, draw near to us. And even that, that that's an act of faith. Again, as I mentioned before, that there's a logic to this, right? That we can understand the logic, resist the devil and he'll flee, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. I can connect those dots and logically I can understand that. But, but there's, there's a matter of faith in drawing near to God saying, I really want this thing over here. I really want to give in to this temptation, but I'm going to resist the devil and I'm going to draw near to God because in faith I'm saying that, that this is better. It's better to draw near to God than to give in to the thing that I really want to give into that I know that I ought not give into. Right? Does that make sense? So it's a matter of faith when it comes to resisting temptation. And we see Jesus exhibiting a perfect faith in his father. It's no coincidence that Luke points out or that Matthew points out that after 40 days of not eating that Jesus was hungry. That was a, had to be a real temptation to Jesus for the devil to come by and say, just turn these rocks into bread. We're not told in scripture that Jesus had to think about that for any amount of time. But if it were me, I might might consider it. You might consider it, right? A real temptation. A real temptation. The devil offering him power and authority had to be a real temptation in Jesus' humanity. Right? In Jesus' divinity, he, he has all the power and he has all the authority. We're told at the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28 that all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. All authority. But human Jesus, right? right? We, we understand the two natures of Christ, that he's fully God and fully man. Not 50% God and 50% man, but fully God and fully man. 100% each, right? We can't even wrap our minds around that as as finite beings, right? Trying to, to, to wrap our minds around an infinite truth. We, we can't do it. We're not capable. But Jesus, fully God and fully man, and human Jesus, right? Th- th- these, are, these are real temptations to him. And Jesus shows us what it's like, not only to resist the devil, but to draw near to God. He's calling his mind to scripture. He's calling his mind to the words of God in the middle of these temptations. As he's resisting the devil... He's also drawing near to God. And we can, we can learn a lesson from that. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So we move into the next scene in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. We see that, that after, so Jesus was baptized immediately was led by the spirit to be tempted, right? So, so God had a purpose in this. And then as soon as that's done, Jesus begins his ministry. It says in verse 12, now when he heard that John, meaning John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. I want to pause here for just a second. This is not the first time in Matthew's gospel in these first few chapters that he's called our attention to what the prophets have spoken. He's called our attention to this quite a bit. 
In chapter 1, he gives us Jesus' family tree, his lineage, going all the way back to Abraham. Right, gives us his, his physical lineage. But then he also, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, and now in chapter 4, calls our attention to what was spoken by the prophets. And so he gives us more a spiritual lineage, we might say, of Jesus. Right, bonifying him as the Christ. And so verse 14, that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Verse 15, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. In chapter one, Isaiah or Matthew called our attention to the prophet Isaiah. And in chapter two, he called our attention to the prophets Micah and Hosea and Jeremiah. And now in chapter four, he's calling our attention again to the prophet Isaiah. Bonifying who, who Jesus is from the scriptures, making sure that, that we know that not only do we have the, the physical family tree of Jesus that goes all the way back to Abraham, a central figure right in biblical history, but we also have as another method of bonification, the prophet's pointing to who Christ is and Matthew connecting those dots for us. And so remember that he, he lived, he grew up in Nazareth, an out-of-the-way place that, that wasn't real glamorous, wasn't really well thought of at all. And that's where Jesus, in God's grand plan, grew up, is in this out-of-the-way place that nobody cared all that much about except God. And now, Jesus in his adulthood is leaving Nazareth and he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. And evidently, according to the prophet Isaiah, this was a dark place. It says the people there were dwelling in darkness and with the advent of Jesus in his ministry, they've now seen a great light. To those dwelling in the region and a shadow of death. Right? Have you ever lived somewhere that's been compared to a shadow of death? <laughs> this place is being compared to the shadow of death. But the good news, it says, on them, in this shadow of death, a great light has dawned as Christ embarks on his ministry. And in verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, so what does this mean to us? Right? We can look at the, the temptation. We, okay, we can connect some dots there and see there's a purpose in this. There's things that we can take away from this. What about Jesus beginning his, his ministry and he decides to, to take up residence in a place called the shadow of death? Right? That tells us something about who Jesus is and who Jesus loves, that, that he's going to the hardest place. I, I know some missionaries, Kelly and Georgia, that, that we met um, years ago on a, on a missionary trip to Cambodia. And Kelly and Georgia are in their retirement years, a couple from Arizona. And in their retirement years, they, 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 they received this call to, to global missions. There's a whole story behind that. But, but when they were kind of feeling this urge that they need to, in their retirement years, engage in global missions, they, they, the first question they asked is, like, where's one of the darkest places on the map? And, and they were pointed to Cambodia as one of the most unreached countries in the world. Like, okay, we're going to go there. And then they got a map of Cambodia and they said, where's the darkest place in Cambodia? Like, where's the shadow of death in Cambodia? And somebody pointed them to this region of Cambodia. That's like, there's almost no Christians in this region. Like, okay, that's where we're going to go. And this is a couple that, you know, haven't had worked their life and probably 
you know, by, by all accounts had, had deserved to maybe just sit on a beach somewhere with their feet up, right? They, they, they'd put in their time. And, and, you know, at the latter part of their life said, where's the darkest place in the world? And then where's the darkest place in that darkest place? That's where we're going to go. And we're going to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and shine a gospel light in a place that doesn't have any. What, what a, just what a neat couple and what a cool story they have. And this was, this was Jesus, right? Going to the darkest place of the darkest place. Prophesied by Isaiah that, that when he did that, that a light has dawned. Right? You ever been in complete darkness, dark room, and you, you light a match or a lighter or turn on a flashlight or something? Like the light just has this way of penetrating the darkness, doesn't it? Darkness can't penetrate the light, but the light can penetrate darkness. And what was the light that was penetrating the darkness? The light this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the light penetrating the darkness. John chapter 1 verses 4 to 5 says that in Jesus was life. And that life was what? The light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It seems like there's a lot of darkness in our world today, doesn't it? Right? Read the headlines. Scroll your social media feed. They call it doom scrolling these days, right? There's a lot of darkness in the world. But we're told here in Scripture that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And this message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand seems like on the surface that this might be kind of a hard message. What, what does it mean to repent? Repent means like I was going this way and now I'm, now I'm going this way, right? It's, it's a 180. It's a, ch- a change in behavior, a change in, in where you're headed. That's what it means to repent. And especially in, our, in our, our individualistic culture that we live in today, and as it's becoming more and more so individualistic, truth, they would say, is not necessarily absolute. I have my truth and you have your truth. And they can be very different and they can both still be true. And maybe there's a sense in which, you know, that, that can exist, but, but we as Christians would believe in the absolute truth of God's word, whether you like it or not, whether it sits well with you or not, whether it causes you heartburn or not, we would agree with the truth of God's word and that it is absolute. And this message, I don't think it's ever been a popular message, but just thinking about our culture today to, to tell anybody that they're doing something that's wrong or that they're doing something that's harmful or they're doing something that harms others, or they're doing something that's not good, or they're doing something that's immoral. You, you can't hardly say that to people today, right? Because, well, that's, that's your truth, but it's not mine, right? Who, who decides what's moral, right? We, we have a standard that tells us what's moral and what's immoral that we do believe is absolute. But this message of change your ways, right? This message of repent, this message of change your ways, it's never been popular, but it's, it's especially not popular now, right? We, we have people engaging in you know, immorality saying, well, God, God has hardwired me for this. He's created me this way. Why would God create me a certain way and then say, I can't act on, on, you know, my desires. Why can't I do that? Jesus message is repent. Jesus message to that is change, change your ways. Right? Come to God as you are, they would say, but don't stay the same. Right? We, we, we want to be you know, a welcoming fellowship and welcome you know, those people out there who, who might not be like us. 
right? We want to be welcoming of that. But we don't ever want to affirm anybody in their sin because it's our sin that separates us from God and it's God who sets the standard of what is sin and what isn't. And anything that is sin according to God's word, the remedy is to repent from that sin. And we have this way as Christians of, like, if you sin like I do, I'll be patient with you. But if you sin in a way that I would never do, then I'm going to be mad at you. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to look down on you because, you know what, I would never do that. Right? That, that's a misunderstanding of, of how sin works in our life. But this was this is Jesus' message is to turn away from sin. Don't run to it, but turn away from it. John 1, 11 to 13 says that he, speaking of Jesus, came to his own and his own people welcomed him with open arms? No, it says that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The creator came to the creation and the creation continued to rebel against the creator. And that's the bad news. But the good news is this. It says, but to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not by blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but by the will of God. And so this Jesus who is calling us to repent from our sin, to turn from our sin and to turn to him, because at the end of the day, what he's saying is that he's better. He's better than our sin, right? Sin is attractive. And the reason that, that we're tempted to sin is because it's enjoyable, at least for a time, right? It's enjoyable to engage in the things that we know we ought not to engage. If sin wasn't enjoyable, we wouldn't be drawn to it, right? But but the message of Christ is to turn from those things, those things that, that in the moment that you might think are good or better, to turn to the thing that is ultimately the best, right? Turn from our sin and turn to God. That's Jesus' message. And that, that's Jesus' central message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and when you think of that statement, my, my mind, I don't know where your mind goes. My mind goes to the guy standing on a street corner with a sandwich board and a bullhorn just being a jerk and yelling at people, you know, turn or burn. <laughs> That, that, that was, that's not Jesus' message. Not, not like that, right? Not like that. Jesus isn't the guy standing on the street corner yelling, right, and, and, and being offensive. I mean, the message of the gospel is, is offensive, we're told. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But, but, but don't think of the guy standing on the street corner. I used to know a guy that would stand on a street corner with a sandwich board and a bullhorn, and he would block the entrance for people going into a store. And the guy, like nobody listened, nobody gave him the time of day because he was a jerk. And that was his message, turn or burn, right? Nobody paid attention to it. Jesus' message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is, is one of, of turn or burn, so to speak. But Jesus' method is not to scare us or like to scare the hell out of us, you might say. That's not Jesus' method. His method is to love those who are his enemies to love those who are against him, for, for God to step into human flesh and come to the creation that had rebelled against him, knowing that they're going to continue to rebel against him and ultimately nail him to a cross, and that it would cause him great suffering. Yet he came in humility and he came in meekness with this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there are going to be some that receive that message. And those some that do receive the message, we're told by John, receive that message, not because they were smart enough to figure it out, not because they were 
logical enough to connect the dots. Again, we don't come to God primarily with our logic. We do use our logic, but it's not the primary method by which we come to know God. We come to God by faith as a primary method. And to all that come to God in faith, we're told, are born of God, not of the decision of any person, not because of anything that a person has done, but simply by the will of God. Simply by the will of God. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that it's, it's the God of this age, the devil, the tempter, that blinds the minds of those who don't believe. Have you ever known anybody who's been able to cure their own blindness? It doesn't happen. Right? Something outside of you, if, if it can even be cured, right? it has to come from something outside of you, somewhere outside of you. And the same is true for us. Spirit, we're spiritually blind and we can't cure our spiritual blindness. That cure has to come from outside of us. It has to come from not the God of this age who has blinded us, but the God of the universe who's ultimately going to put the God of this age in his place. And he's the one that gives sight to the blind. He's the one who allows the lost to be found and by his, his will. And so a couple of things that we can take away from these 17 verses in Matthew chapter 4 is that God knows what he's doing. God has a plan that's unfolding. And God has a purpose. And if there was a purpose in, in the temptation of Christ so, so that we can relate to our Savior, there's a purpose in him embarking on his ministry, starting off with the message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, because that is the message of the cross. And God's showing us in the cross how far he is willing to go in order to effect repentance in those that belong to him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but that they would have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's the message of the cross. And this is what Matthew will point us to as we make our way through the book. And so, for you today, if, if you're here and you're, you're struggling with, with temptation and suffering, know that you have a Savior that, that knows what you're going through. And we're told that, that we can resist the devil and he'll flee and we can draw near to God and then he'll draw near to us. If you're here today and this message of repent for the kingdom of heaven at hand is new for you, or a message even that, that maybe isn't new that you've rejected in the past, here, here's the message again today, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come, come to God because it's better. And, and not, I don't say better in a, in a prosperity kind of a mindset. Like the message of the cross is not come to God and he'll make your life good. The message of the cross is not come to God and you won't suffer. The message is not come to God and you'll have health and wealth. Right? Those, those are false gospels. Those are false gospels. But when I say come to God because it's better, what, what, I, what I mean is that, that coming to God for the Christian you're going to have a joy that, that nothing in this world will produce for you. You have the joy of knowing that, that God has called you, that God has removed the blinders from your eyes. You're able to see him because he loves you and because he cares about you. And so when the temptations come, when the struggles come, when the suffering comes, you have a Savior who, who is able to relate to you and know what you're going through. And does, doesn't promise us that those things will be absent from our lives, but does promise us that, that he will walk through those things with us, right? And, and that we can draw near to him. And when we do, that he will draw near to us. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand.
Father, today we're grateful for your word. We're grateful uh, that you love us. We're grateful that you uh, have done for us things that we could and would never do for ourselves. God, we're thankful for the message of the cross. We're thankful um, that, that you are patient with us uh, in our sinning and in our temptations, in our trials. You're patient with us when we blow it. God, we're thankful that your word tells us that, that if you've begun a work in us, that you'll be faithful to complete it. And so I pray today, God, that you would uh, bolster our faith uh, just for those that, that are suffering under trials or temptations. God, that you would help them to draw near to you so that you would draw near to them, that you would help us to resist the devil in our lives and that you would help us to ever be mindful just of our own sin and our own need uh, for repentance and that repentance isn't necessarily a one-time thing, that, that it's it's an ongoing act in our life that we continually turn from our sin to you. And I pray that you would help us to do that because we can't do it on our own. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.